More and more people report experiencing imposter syndrome, often in new and challenging social or professional situations. They are unable to internalize their own success, attributing it instead to external factors like chance or luck. As a result, they often see themselves as frauds. In this episode, we introduce a solution to imposter syndrome that gives us independence from the validation and judgments of others. I'm Sharif Yunus with Dr. Kevin Majors, and this is The Golden Hour. Facing imposter syndrome involves many of the same methods as overcoming other difficulties at work, like anxiety, distraction, and burnout. Our online masterclass systematically covers our entire theory of growth to help you engage all of these challenges and start thriving in your work. In this four-week masterclass available on OptimWork.com, Dr. Majors will guide you through all the key ideas of optimal work with exercises provided to help you master them. Now let's get started. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of the Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, good to be here with you again. Hey, Sharif, it's great to be back. Yes. Well, Kevin, I thought it would be great for us to have an episode. Honestly, I'm surprised we haven't covered this topic because it's such a fundamental topic, kind of at the intersection of work and psychology. So I'm surprised we haven't discussed it yet, but that topic is imposter syndrome. So I'm wondering, first of all, just, has, is yeah, this something Cue the that, scary music in the background. Exactly. We'll, we'll have them add that later. Uh, yeah. is, this, is this something that, uh, that you've encountered? I mean, do you have, I don't know how much you want to talk about do patients ha- come to you and they say, I have imposter syndrome and I just, mm-hmm. so, or, or is this something that you just hear about? Yeah. So in some ways this is, uh, since it was first described, you know, like 40 years ago, it's something that has been slightly controversial. Uh, initially it was thought of being, uh, something that women only had. So, and, but then later when they started having these questionnaires to assess it, they were seeing, no, in fact, in plenty of the studies, the women and men are equal. There are some where, where you know, one group has it more than the other. So that was like one sense of the controversy. You know, another sense of controversy is, is this something, are we pathologizing a certain way of being, like by giving it the name of a syndrome? Because the original paper only described it as the imposter phenomenon, yeah, and so, but somehow colloquially, it just became known as the imposter syndrome, and that name has really stuck. Now, with that said, no one has ever come to me and said I need help with imposter syndrome, but the thoughts that underlie it are thoughts like I am a fraud, or if people really knew me, they wouldn't think I was that great or competent. That's really, really common. So I, you know, my practice is in Harvard Square. I teach at Harvard Medical School. I'm exposed to a lot of people who are very high performers. High performers can have, very, they can be so tough on themselves. And in some ways that helps them to somehow stay motivated to perform well. So they, these unrelenting high standards. It's no surprise that imposter syndrome goes along with perfectionism and achievement. So these things, they all tend to, to go together. So I'm not to say, not to, I'm, not, I'm not trying to like so give it's a, a good marathon thing. answer here, but okay. yeah, I think yeah. it's not really right to call it a syndrome. It's a thought. And it's a thought that people have that they're a fraud 
Like it, so it's, it's an expression of self-doubt. The emotion goes with it as a rule is anxiety. Although sometimes after a failure, it could be feeling sad or depressed. But as a rule, the, the, the emotion that goes with this is anxiety. And I actually don't like having it as a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis. It's a description of a normal thought that normal people will have in understandable situations. So, Kevin, this this question comes with me not having an, an academic background in psychology, but it seems to me that there are many new diagnoses that are being made now that maybe weren't being made 50 or 100 years ago. And imposter syndrome seems to fit into that. Uh, maybe ADHD or ADD is another example of that. So maybe you can just help to clarify for me. I mean, are we uncovering something that always existed? Or is this a new phenomenon that's brought about by changes in culture or technology or things like that? Well, there is definitely the case that as we go on in time, we are having more disorders specified. And this is the what happens with the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, the DSM. So each iteration of the DSM has more things in it. Uh, if you go back, you know, I don't know how many, I don't have all the numbers on top, you know, top of my mind, but I don't know, it might be that when you were back at the DSM two, you know, now we're on five, but if the two, it was like, you know, 18 diagnoses that were listed. You know, now there are hundreds. Um, I remember one of my teachers saying that the DSM one basically was a sentence that said, people have problems. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh so the, yes the field has gotten more and more you know like nitty gritty about diagnoses. With that said, ADHD is one of these DSM diagnoses and imposter syndrome is not. So imposter syndrome is is something it's a, more of a pop kind of psychology diagnosis. You know, that uh, it's something where people read something about it or they'll be at a conference and then they'll see, "Oh, do you have imposter syndrome?" and they're all curious about it. So in, in that sense, this is not a real diagnosis uh, and there's no real research criteria to it. But there is a questionnaire, there is a number of questions actually that, that you know, people can take that will give them an indication, do they seem to have this constellation of things? Namely, they have thoughts about being a fraud and they somehow discount their own success. So that when things go really well, they attribute it more to something external like luck or favoritism in their favor or something like that rather than the fact that they're actually really good at what they're doing and that's just being recognized. So if you have that and then as a result of that, people, you know, they will try to cope in different ways, you know, and in that sense, you know, we start getting into, you know, different writers' experience. I'm always interested, though, in, in people, if they feel they have this, they say, oh, yeah, this describes me exactly. I'm interested in what's the good we can put that to. And maybe the best good we can put that to is going deeper into understanding where we get ongoing motivation for success. So, that, you know, does it come from outside of us? And then somehow if we invalidate that, in our own minds, then we like uh, we you know say that just doesn't count. Then we develop this imposter syndrome, 
is it does it have to be that kind of choice or is it actually is there a way of transcending it completely of course i think there is mm -hmm. okay so this that's really interesting so you're looking at it from a very different angle i think maybe a kind of standard angle would be okay imposter syndrome is bad it makes people feel bad how do we get it to go away but you're looking at you're basically reframing it how do we flip it how what opportunity for growth is contained in someone having these types of thoughts about themselves. Exactly. And I think that when people feel that they have this, one, it's typically in a situation where they're trying something new. If you were just playing it really safe in life and you said, I will never do anything that challenges me, I'm just going to play it safe, well then great. You would never struggle with quote unquote, imposter syndrome. It, it tends to happen when people are pushing themselves to situations that re, in fact require a higher level of performance than they've hitherto had. Now, to me, that is an awesome thing. We want people out of their comfort zone. And one of the signs you're out of this comfort zone is that you could have the feeling, I'm a fraud and they're going to discover me any moment now. Okay, so I think if it's a transitional thing like that that's happening, great. That 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 actually is, it can be very much welcome as just the lay of the land and a signpost that you're in uncharted territory of new growth. And that should be celebrated, not turned into a syndrome. So now, what if the person has been in the same situation for 20 years and they still feel like they're an imposter? Well, in that case... My guess is that it's just become a habitual way of thinking. And whenever they notice it, it still is shapeable and that there is a way that they can address it. So, but the more in the literature, the more common times it shows up is on transitions, you know, and that makes sense that you know, for a while people feel like a fraud until they get really good at what they're doing. And then they have confidence that comes from that. Mm -hmm. And to me, it, it seems like imposter syndrome does show that the person cares about their performance. I mean, and, and this is why I think you mentioned earlier that it can be actually linked to it, imposter syndrome can be a kind of motivation and people who have it often do have a lot of professional success. So it means that someone, they are concerned with, well, are other people happy with my work? Am I being a good coworker? Am I handling my responsibilities well? Am I doing my part to make the team succeed? And then they're also concerned about, yeah, just the quality. Am I, do, I, do I know the things that someone in my role should know? Um, so from that perspective, maybe it's, it's there's some good in it. There are at least some good concerns that are part of it. Yeah, so you, you have to ask yourself, would someone be better off just treating imposter syndrome as a normal sign of being stretched and that it is worth it because being stretched is such a gold mine for growth that if all you had to put up with was this feeling like, oh, you have thoughts like you're a fraud, maybe you get anxious by that. But if you could, one, just normalize it, understand that this is completely understandable. But their situation that it comes in is golden. Okay, that, I think, would make the person ultimately say, then I don't want to be rid of imposter syndrome. 
right? So if being rid of it means that I'm no longer being stretched in the same way. So I think if you could accept self-doubt as a normal part of being stretched, that would go a long way to embracing it. And gradually what happens then is if you're not doing anything to try to get rid of the self-doubt, it just becomes irrelevant. And gradually you don't have the self-doubt, but it doesn't go away while you're trying to make it go away. And if you did anything with the intention of making your self-doubt go away by doing a really good job on this thing, somehow it would cheapen the result and it wouldn't count. You think, well, okay, if I put everything into it and I'm doing, you know, somehow it'll, it'll, it'll backfire. So I don't think you ever want your own validation to be the goal. As if like, well, if I was fully validated or if it was fully affirmed by others, then I would, you know, be okay, you know, uh, you know, when I wouldn't have the self-doubt. Well, I think that's an easy trap to fall into thinking that somehow you need validation from other people or affirmation from other people in order to know that you're on the right track. And that I don't think is a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're setting conditions for your own kind of happiness or well-being that are not in your control, which is a, a tough position. Exactly. So I think knowing that we're making progress in life in some sense gives us dopamine. I mean, I think in a really material sense, you know, we get dopamine from knowing that we're making progress, but seeing validation as the way you know you're making progress would make your dopamine depend on other people. So I think that's why have energy dependence? You know, if dopamine really does give us energy to pursue goals, it motivates us, you know, to be striving. You know, then yes, as you make progress, you do get increases in dopamine, even more so than on, com on completing the course. Well, it's better that you have energy independence. You know, and that's what happens when people really focus on ideals and mastery as the things they're aiming for, because those are not attainable. You could never exhaust them, you know, any given ideal or mastery in any given kind of task. So, but as you are getting better and better at it, the very fact that there's a virtuous cycle lets you know that progress is happening. So you can see, oh, this is actually getting more enjoyable as I do it. You know, and I'm getting better at doing all these different aspects and it's becoming more meaningful. So meaning, mastery, pleasure are all increasing now. The more I put myself into this task, that's a virtuous cycle. And that means that you are on a path of unlimited dopamine because you can continue making progress and sensing it as you sense the virtuous cycle increasing. So I call that energy independence. It's better than validation because it doesn't mean you need some kind of benchmark, especially not other people and their, and their approval. You know, and so I think that that's, I don't know, does that sound doable, believable? Yeah, it sounds believable. So let me, let me just try to um, see if I understand you correctly. So when we're talking about imposter syndrome, this is a need for validation from others. And so, and a, a kind of sense that you're not fully competent, that you're an imposter, that you're a fraud. So uh, maybe I can just put the question another way. To what extent are we 
in this process that you described, giving up our need for validation or becoming or, or kind of gaining a more certain knowledge that actually, in fact, we are competent. It seems like through the path you're described, we're in some way doing both. So there's something inherently invalidating about seeking validation. Because just having the need for validation somehow undercuts whatever validation you get. So just to say, like, validation is tricky. So it's much better to let go of the need for validation. So you simply don't have that same need anymore. The effect of that is better than validation. It is just the irrelevance of validation. Then you are perhaps going to be looking at ways that you can know that you're progressing in your trade, in your craft, in what your, your profession. That, so it could be that you end up finding more and more ways of challenging yourself objectively to see how can I get better at this. So, like for instance, you know, if I'm working at becoming a better therapist, I wouldn't want my patients, like I wouldn't want to be asking them, hey, so was I a good therapist this time? <laughs> yeah. Like trying to get validation, right? Because it wouldn't, well, it wouldn't be right for, you know, for one, for a psychiatrist to do that. But it also just wouldn't be that effective, I think, even making me somehow feel more validated. But actually seeing people get better faster and seeing that there are fewer and fewer cases where I don't feel like I'm getting traction. So it happens that more and more I get traction quickly. Okay, well, all of that's a sign that I am progressing. But I could go years and never really think about it in those terms. Like, am I progressing as a therapist? Am I getting better? It's just not a question. But I think I'm relatively relentless about making sure that I am giving people the best possible therapy and I'm trying to always make that better. So I just say from my own experience and my own trying to become really the master of a craft, you know, that high standards are helpful. And so if it's all a game of validation, you'd have to say, well, then it's maybe it's safer not to have high standards. Like, no, I want high standards. But it's just how do you go about knowing that you're making progress. Can you find really objective ways of determining that versus other people just telling you it? Okay, well, so Kevin, this is great kind of background way of thinking about it, but I guess now practically speaking, if suppose you have someone who just started a new job and maybe they are actually struggling in terms of their performance and they're having this thought, I am a fraud, I am an imposter then what, what would you actually have them do? Well, I would want them to respond to this thought in a way that desensitizes them to it. So that means normalizing the experience, being able to welcome the thought, to see that this is partly going to happen whenever there is a real stretch in front of them. And therefore, it means that they have adrenaline. They could see that this thought is the proof of the presence of adrenaline. It's just how their mind responds. So rather than focusing on the thought itself, try to welcome the sense of drive and adrenaline that they get when the thought shows up. I remember uh, once helping someone who, who had this thought, and the person is going to be giving a big presentation, and they... Um, and I think I might have even, I don't know, somehow this topic came up, you know, and, and, and somehow this thought, I'm a fraud, was on the table. 
So I, I uh, encourage the person to write that thought down and then read it again and again in their, and just read it over and over silently in their mind. And, uh, and the person did that and they got a flare of anxiety, not huge, but it was, it was enough of a flare that, and this was in my office. And so I can actually give people in that case, a medicine called propanol. After you've done an exposure to something like a thought that, that could trigger their anxiety, propanolol helps you to completely erase the threat label if you give it five minutes after an exposure. So I can't go into all the reasons why that works here, but it's very powerful and very interesting. So I, I gave it to the person. And then a week later, the person came back and I asked them, so um, what was it like? You know, what is, and the person said, that in fact, the thoughts seem to be gone. And they said, it's like, imagine looking at a tree that is drawn on a board, you know, on like a whiteboard, a tree, and they actually drew it on the board. You know, where you have the thick trunk in the middle, it's very dark, you know, and then you, you see how the, the, the branches and twigs come out. It's like a tree without leaves seen from the top. And the person then erased the whole middle trunk and said, it's like that. You still have these little thoughts and things that come in, but they just don't go anywhere now. Well, so that's a very, I think, interesting thing. I have to say, I don't think I've ever done it again with that particular thought. I think that you could kind of zap it out and do some kind of fun exposure therapy techniques, but it's better, I think, to just work with its presence and to get the adrenaline benefit that it, that it brings. So to me, that's a much more stable thing. Kevin, this kind of reminds me of something with anxiety. And so You'll have to correct me if I'm explaining this right, but the idea is that it's kind of a paradox that if you're not willing to experience the anxiety, you get the anxiety. But as soon as you're willing to experience it, it goes away. So it seems like imposter syndrome. I mean, it's it's very similar that uh, if you're not, if you don't want, if you think imposter syndrome is a bad thing, then you get it. But if you're just okay with the thoughts being there, and as you said, like use them for energy and adrenaline, uh, then over time, it actually can start to just kind of fade away on its own. Um, is that a correct reading of that? I think that's exactly right. And I think that the wrong way of addressing imposter syndrome is to turn it into a problem and to think that now it has to be solutioned. Like so many things, it's, they're, they're only problems if we, if we turn them into problems and give them that power, that status. Don't think that imposter syndrome has to be anything like that. It should just be something that you know that these are the kinds of thoughts you have. You know, and it doesn't mean that you can't have joy in your work. So really, ultimately, what we want people to have is to come to joy, to like love the work that they do, to love doing it at their best. So aiming for ideals in your work, you know, aiming for real mastery. Well, those things are deeply enjoyable, you know, and that's what we're ultimately where we want people to be heading. So I would say that uh, my, I guess my final thought would be, you know, that when you notice yourself having thoughts about not measuring up, you know, it is, there's no need to reassure yourself that you do measure up. It's much better to ask yourself, in fact, what would be the most meaningful kind of progress I would want to make here. 
And how can I come up with a real specific strategy for doing that right now with the adrenaline that I have? I think that's a much better approach. Be specific, stretch yourself. And as long as the stretch is there, then you can say, great, bring it on. This is exactly what I need to really give others my best. Awesome. Well, Kevin, hey, this has been super helpful. Thanks so much. Um, I'm sure I'll get something out of this personally as well. So as as usual. Yeah, Shreve. Uh, well, this is this great. So thank, thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. We'll be back next week. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out OptumWork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.